In April 2019, a crack team of Teambridge District councillors declared a climate emergency and swore to be carbon neutral by 2025. As a result, Action on Climate Teambridge was formed by a group of local volunteers. Enlisting a team of wildlife wardens for help, they use their knowledge and expertise to support residents and councils across Teambridge to build climate-friendly communities and help wildlife to flourish. If you care about our natural world and want to help, you can find and you can support the ACT team. Hello and welcome to the Devon Wildlife Warden podcast, hosted by me, Emily Marbay. In this month's podcast, I will be talking about the Great Big Green Week, what we got up to in Newton Abbott and Dawlish, plus a word from our founder, Audrey Compton. We will also be talking pets. Do you know which pets have the biggest environmental impact and which are the most eco-friendly? Find out later. I'll also be talking autumn gardening jobs so you can get your green space ready for the cold months ahead while still helping your local wildlife. But first of all, as usual, here is a quick update on what some of the Teambridge Wildlife Wardens have been up to in the last month or so. Here in Abbots Kurzweil, we organised a rake and cake morning, which was a great success. We offered any local volunteers the opportunity to come and rake the cuttings in our village wildflower patches in return for a piece of cake. We had a lovely sunny Sunday morning for the job and I am thrilled that quite a few people showed up. Otherwise, I am pretty sure my muscles and hands would have been a lot more sore than they were at the end of the morning. Huge thanks again to those who showed up to help us out. Coming up in Abbots Kurzweil, we also have Apple Day on the 24th of October. This is a community apple pressing in the village hall, but we also have been invited to have an Abwild stand there. So we'll be providing materials to make apple bird feeders, something fun for the children to get involved with, as well as promoting other projects we have on the go, such as the community orchard, wildflower areas and attempts to get the church to go greener. As mentioned in the last episode, the beaver consultation is now open and some of our wildlife wardens have been reading up and commenting on that project, which is great. Management continues on the rectory field site in Ogwell and plenty of visitors have been enjoying the space. Ogwild also held a moth breakfast at the end of last month, featuring Barry Henwood, who is the moth recorder for Devon. They got to take a look at his moth trap and have a go at identifying some of the hundreds of moths which were caught. They saw about 65 different species in total, and you'll be pleased to hear that all moths were re-released without harm to them. Children and adults alike seem to enjoy the event and get lots out of it, so great work, as always, in Ogwell. Over in Bovey, it might be early days for some of our newest wildlife wardens, but they've been busy surveying two of the local churchyards and are also in contact with the town council on a regular basis regarding the management of Millmarsh Park, the verges and the churchyards. They are also going to start setting up some dormice tunnels with other volunteers at Yana over the coming weeks. Great work and huge thanks for the update, Janet! In Bishop Stainton, the Wildflower Art Competition, which was mentioned in the last podcast, was a huge success. The paintings submitted were a joy to see, and all 80 children who took part were given a packet of wildflower seeds so they could go off and plant their own metre of meadow. So an all-round fantastic outcome there. 
And although not in Teambridge, in Ermington, the local wildlife group have had their churchyard surveyed and planted a new hedge with native species to help form a wildlife corridor. They plan to strim the new wildflower meadow soon and plant some yellow rattle to help impoverish the grasses. They also plan to strim one third of the bramble patch on a three-yearly basis each autumn to prevent it encroaching into the rest of the space too much. Thanks to Ellen for that update too. And of course, many of the Teambridge Wildlife Wardens have been actively involved in the Great Big Green Week. We had events in Dawlish and also Newton Abbott. I went along to the Newton Abbott one and helped out for a couple of hours. We had electric vehicles and their owners on hand to talk about the benefits of owning or leasing one of these vehicles. And we also had a climate climate change stand talking about how people can reduce their carbon footprint and a wildlife warden stand where people could drop by and check out some cool skulls, bones and other local wildlife curiosities such as field mouse nests and examples of hazelnuts opened by dormice and other small mammals. There were fun activities for children to get involved with too, and it's something that's really important to think about because we do need to make sure we are inspiring the next generation at every turn if we hope to make a difference. On the stand, we also chatted lots about wildlife gardening and how local residents can get involved and support the biodiversity in their area. Audrey Compton, founder of the Wildlife Warden Scheme, was kind enough to record a short comment for the podcast about the event – So here she is, our roving reporter, Audrey Compton. Hello, it's Audrey Compton talking from Great Big Green Week in Newton Abbott, where we've had act stalls here all day, Action on Climate in Teambridge, and also a really, really busy, wonderful wildlife wardens stall. Um, We have been non-stop with families and people of all ages coming to find out about wildlife particularly our mysterious box of skulls, which is always a big draw. And the interest in wildlife is luckily absolutely fantastic and growing every day. So lots of people finding out about what they can do, especially in their own gardens or their own neighbourhoods, or even in the schools that their children are in. So I think we've achieved a lot today. It's been a brilliant day. And also really important, people are finding out how climate change is affecting our wildlife as well as just a lack of space or a lack of habitat and how we've all got to change our lives um, in order to fight climate change and make it a better world for people and for all the wildlife and that we can't just do little things we've got to do lots of little things so that's what we've been talking about today and it's been a really really rewarding day so thanks for listening bye Next, I'd like to talk a bit about jobs you can get involved with in the garden to help support wildlife this autumn and winter. I know it's more tempting to be in the garden when it's sunny and the days are long and hazy, but we also need to think about our friends in the garden over winter. How are we going to support them and what can we do to help out? There was a lovely article shared online which um, was published by Gardener's World and I'll link to that in the episode notes but I just wanted to run through a few of these ideas with you in this podcast to hopefully get you thinking about what you can do in your garden. First of all, a bit of pond maintenance. Don't just leave your pond over winter and hope for the best. Just an hour of work will make all the difference to frogs and other pond dwellers. 
You should remove excess plant material now to prevent it from rotting and giving off gases that could poison our froggy friends. And it's also suggested that you leave a tennis ball floating on the surface, which helps to keep ponds from freezing over completely and offers the frogs an escape hatch if needed. Another thing you can do is put little bundles of twigs and sticks in sheltered spots for hibernating invertebrates. It's an easy thing to do and something the kids can definitely get involved with as well. You might also think about leaving your herbaceous borders alone. The plant material provides cover over winter for insects and small mammals, and the seed heads also provide valuable food for overwintering birds. So try to resist the temptation to cut it all back and chuck it on the compost heap or in your green bin and leave it instead over winter. Stacks of plant pots also offer a great site for hibernating bees or other insects that need a cool and dry spot in which to wait out the winter. So maybe try leaving a pile of them in a corner somewhere if you can. I definitely don't have an issue with that one. I've got tons of plant pots piled in the corner of my garden needing something doing with them. Another thing you can do is move any butterflies or ladybirds you find in the house to your shed. Now, it might sound silly, but your shed has a cooler, more consistent temperature than your house. So if you spot adult butterflies or ladybirds coming in, they could be looking for a spot in which to overwinter. Gently put them into a box and transfer them to your shed if you have one, and they'll be in a better position to survive the long winter months. The next tip is to do with leaves. Gathering them up is fine, but try to pile them in a corner somewhere rather than composting them. Many leaves will have eggs on them, so you'll be helping give next year's insects a head start by keeping hold of leaves. You'll also be providing shelter for hibernating hedgehogs and a host of other organisms, so don't underestimate the value of the leaves you sweep up in the garden this autumn. If you have a compost heap, try to leave it alone between autumn and April. This is often an attractive place for hibernating hedgehogs and queen bumblebees. If your compost heap is a plastic bin type, just make sure there is access in the bottom of it for these animals and cover the top so it remains sheltered. Another useful autumn job is cleaning out bird boxes. By doing this, they are ready for nest building next spring and they can also offer overwintering birds a place to shelter during the particularly cold moments in winter. And the last thing I wanted to mention is um, just your loft space. Now these areas are often host to overwintering insects or hibernating bats, so when you get your Halloween or Christmas decorations out or whatever, take care not to disturb any visitors you might have gained during the chilly winter months. Next, I'd like to talk pets. Do you know what the most eco-friendly pets are to own? Or how you can mitigate the environmental impact of the pets you do have at home? Well, as an animal lover myself, we have had lots of different pets in our home, from the standard cats and dogs to tropical fish, frogs, and currently some quail and an African tortoise who we rescued. But I do have to admit to not really considering the environmental impact these animals have had on the world, or how I can do my bit to mitigate the damage being done. So, in June this year, when I saw an article from National Geographic on the subject, it really got me thinking. 
A chew toy here and a packet of mints there might not seem like a big concern for the planet's health, especially with the climate's rising temperatures and one million wildlife species being at risk of extinction. But with one-third of all households on Earth owning at least one dog, and almost one-quarter of households owning at least one cat, the cost adds up. If you take small numbers and multiply them by really big numbers, you still end up with really big numbers. Even my seven-year-old can tell you that, and he's very proud of being able to tell you what a million times five is. So, what waste is created by pets? Well, there's poo, of course. Used cat litter, pet food packaging, old toys, and ease even seasonal outfits and costumes. And I don't think for one minute that you should deprive yourself of that cute Christmas photo of your chihuahua in an elf costume. But all this can push the overall sustainability of owning pets into the red. And of course, some of these issues are unsolvable side effects of the decision to own animals. I mean, you can try to get your animal to poo or pee less, but I think you'll be fighting a losing battle. From the kind of pet you choose and the food you feed it, to the way you play with it and clean up after that animal, you and your children have plenty of ways to reduce the toll your pets do take on the planet. And although not everyone agrees on the best way to minimise your pet's paw print, there are some basic ideas for you and your family to keep in mind. In a study published in 2017, it was calculated that all the faeces produced by pet dogs and cats living in the United States adds up to 5.1 million tonnes each year. That's about how much rubbish the state of Massachusetts produces annually, which means even more climate change-inducing methane gas as all the poos break down. And dog and cat poops aren't big, but there are an awful lot of them. There might not be much you can do about a pet's methane emissions, so the trick might be teaching kids about sustainable methods of disposing of said poop. For instance, you might choose compostable doggy bags over plastic ones. You might take the trouble to flush your dog's waste or buy kitty litter made out of bamboo, corn or other biodegradable products rather than clay. And although it's okay to flush dog poop, don't do this with cat mess because although it might seem like an eco-friendly solution, scientists have found that cat faeces can actually pass deadly parasites onto endangered wildlife, so it's worth being aware of that. And then there is pet food. Whether it's dry kibble, pate with gravy, or whatever else those fancy TV adverts make you feel like a loving owner for buying, pet food ingredients have to come from somewhere. And some are more sustainable than others. Foods that contain high levels of protein are particularly burdensome, especially if those proteins come from high-impact animals like cows. There's also a lot of confusion about how much protein pets require, with many pet food companies advertising ever higher levels of whole muscle proteins like white meat chicken and salmon fillets, while also disparaging fillers. Some use the term filler to refer to grains or fibres, but that is basically negative marketing lingo. Grains provide starch useful for diet structure and are a readily available energy source, and fibre provides many benefits to gut health. In general, the pet food industry is already fairly sustainable, since they do contain products left over from the human food industry. 
that families can do several things to make their pets' food consumption even more sustainable. The first thing you can do, and possibly one of the easiest, is to feed to a healthy body weight. There are so many overweight pets, and this isn't great for their health or for the environment either, so it's a no-brainer to address this issue first. And I get it, your dog's going to beg, he's going to tell you he's hungry even when he's not really. The cat might do the same. They're looking for the treats, they're looking for the tidbits, but do try to resist the temptation. Even if it's scraps that we're going to go in the bin otherwise, keeping your pet at a healthy weight is important for their own health. Another suggestion is to adjust your pet's food based on its age. When they're young, puppies and kittens require more protein and overall calories, but they may need less as they get older. So it's worth a chat to your vet about it and to try adjusting the diet accordingly if you have older animals at home. Cats are also often fed foods that are higher in protein than they actually need. By looking for cat foods with protein ratios in the high 20s and low 30s, you can help reduce their environmental impact. Dogs can likely get away with even less protein, given that they've evolved omnivorous diets that more closely mirror our own. Doing this is going to save you cash as well, as high-protein foods tend to be more expensive, so that has to be another win worth having. And did you know that playing with your house cat for just 5-10 to minutes a day significantly reduces their desire to hunt wild animals? Don't believe me? Well, a study published in March this year supports that claim, so dust off your ball of wool and feather duster and get that lazy kitty out of bed. And that's good news because outdoor cats kill billions of wild animals every year, making them an enormous strain on our native species. It's worth noting that in this study they also found out that collars designed to make outdoor cats more conspicuous to their prey reduced the number of birds killed by 42%. So, you know, wearing a collar, great for birds. However, the colourful accessories had no effect on the number of small mammals captured. So collars, good for birds, less good for mammals. But interestingly, collars with bells on them showed no effect for either birds or mammals. Although other research has found that jingling cats might kill as many as 50% fewer animals. So the jury's out on bells. However, as a side note, some people do contend that bells actually make the cats more likely to become prey themselves. So maybe leave off the bell and just go for a brightly coloured or reflective collar. And of course, the best thing you can do to reduce wildlife losses is just simply keep your cat indoors. Or if you don't want to keep them indoors, maybe an outdoor run or cat playpen is an option. In fact, my auntie and uncle make these for a living, so hit me up if you're interested in their details. They make some pretty big, cool cat runs. Another way to contribute to the overall sustainability of pets is to pick the right one. A smaller dog is obviously going to have less of an environmental impact than a large one. And according to one analysis of pet species and the relative costs they inflict on the environment, small animals like rabbits, guinea pigs, hamsters, mice and rats were among the most sustainable pets to own. Spiders, such as tarantulas, also garnered a top spot and they are easier for kids to care for as well. Although I think my son would run a mile if he came home to a tarantula in his room. But the analysis's most eco-friendly pet may surprise you, Drum roll, please. Tortoises. This is thanks to the reptile's vegetarian diet, 
slow metabolism and low water and exercise requirements. However, as a tortoise owner myself, I would urge caution. We rescued an African leopard tortoise, and as she doesn't hibernate, her carbon footprint over winter is very high, as we need a heat lamp on most of the day for her to thermoregulate. So if you do want to get a tortoise, I'd recommend getting a European variety that will hibernate during the winter months and keep your energy bills down. And don't forget that they live for a long time, so you do need to build that into your considerations when thinking about getting one. Hermit crabs are also popular with kids, but the animals don't breed well in captivity and therefore must be taken from the wild in very unsustainable levels. Parrots and many other colourful bird species are similarly threatened, so I'd urge you to stay away from buying those sorts of pets. And another thing to mention before I finish talking pets is the flea and worm treatments we use for them. Hopefully, we all want to be responsible pet owners, and as such, many of us take our pets for regular flea, worm and tick treatments as preventative measures. But there may be other ways. Dried rabbit ears, for example, are thought to help prevent worms in dogs and would be a much more sustainable method for controlling these parasites than chemical treatments made in factories and distributed in plastic pipettes. And that's before you even consider the impact of these chemicals on our watercourses when our canine pals go for a swim while we're out for a walk. How many of us dog owners stop to consider the fact we are spreading unwanted chemicals into the environment every time we walk our dog if they have been recently treated with such products? Horses too are often wormed, and the chemicals in these treatments can be harmful to dung beetles and other invertebrates and in some cases they've been shown to be harmful to dog species as well. So again, if you're a horse owner, maybe think about what you do with the poo for a few days after worming. I know that my last dog used to love trying to eat every bit of poop he came across in the street, and although I'd try and stop him, he would sometimes get a bit down him before I could stop him. In fact, my son did term him a poopnivore because he did it so often. Fortunately, he never seemed to get sick from this, but responsible horse owners should stop to consider the impact their worming chemicals can have on the environment and do all they can to mitigate against this where they possibly can. Perhaps by keeping their hooved friends stabled for a few days after administering a worming treatment. After all, every little helps, and we can all do something, even if it's small, to reduce the impact our animals have on the environment. And now for this month's petition. I'd like to include one of these so that you can get active at home if you want to. Um, and I don't mean Joe Wicks active, I mean save the planet active. Um, so in this episode of the podcast, I'd like to urge you to sign the Say No to Peat sales petition, which is being promoted by the Devon Wildlife Trust. Peat used in our compost is dug out of wild places, damaging some of the last remaining peatlands in the UK and overseas. This process also releases carbon into the atmosphere, accelerating climate change. Ten years ago, the government set a voluntary target for the horticulture sector to stop selling peat compost to gardeners by 2020. But, sadly, this approach has failed. So now action is needed to end peat compost sales in our shops and garden centres and to bring forward the date that professional growers must also stop using peat. So I'll stick the link to that petition 
in the episode notes so that you can go and sign against Pete if you want to. And just to finish up, another thing you can do at home is become an insect champion. Did you know that 41% of insect species face extinction? The loss of their habitats and overuse of pesticides are two major reasons why insects are dying eight times faster than large animals. By stepping up to become an insect champion, you can help do your bit to reverse the decline. I'll provide a link in the episode notes so you can sign up for a free Action for Insects guide if this is something you'd be willing to get involved with. And that just about brings us to the end of this episode of the Devon Wildlife Warden podcast. I hope you learned something useful today and feel inspired to do something, however small, for your local wildlife. This podcast was narrated and produced by me, Emily Marbay, with music by Upbeat Whistle.